This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. Kyle, so excited to have you on the podcast. I've like, you know, known bits and pieces about your story. And um, obviously, we know each other, have rubbed shoulders through like work stuff. I love stories that are addiction recovery came back to church because obviously that's my story, but because I feel like the transformation is so profound. I mean, the transformation in your life, like the transformation in your heart and just all the things like when there's addiction involved and you can be in some of the most dark places. So I'm just, I'm excited to have you on and to hear your stories. Why don't you start by just kind of introducing yourself, kind of what you do for work, maybe okay. tell us a little bit about your your family or whatever. So we have some context before you jump in. So my name is Kyle Hickman. I, I am a licensed clinical social worker. I've had my LCSW for just over or around a year, actually. And it's through my journey that kind of actually led me to this profession. I grew up in Oklahoma until I was 11. I've been a member all my life. I am the youngest of six kids. My father was a convert. The, the church was a huge part of his life. Unfortunately, when I was 11, he passed away. He was diagnosed with uh, mesothelioma when I was eight years old. And so for from eight to 11, there was a, a period of time where he and my mom were just kind of absent doing treatments like in Boston, Houston, different places because it was so new. Uh, so we had a lot of family family members and family friends stepping up to kind of hold down the household. And I didn't really like understand everything at the time. So they said he he passed away when I was 11. And I, I at that point, I didn't really like understand either. Like I knew that he passed away. Like everybody in my family was grieving and I didn't really know what grief was. From that point, there was a series of deaths in my in my life um, between like really close family friends or family friends or family members. From the age of eleven to sixteen, I ended up losing my my dad. My cousin completed suicide through her own mental health and addiction. My grandfather died. My grandma died, and then uh, one of my dad's best friends passed away. Who was another father figure to me. And to add to the trauma of my dad, my mom had family here. I'm, I, I live in Logan, Utah. And my mom had family up here, our family from Lawton, Oklahoma to, to Logan, Utah in the middle of the winter, which was absurd. So I, I kind of got uprooted from my roots and, and didn't really have a lot of friends here. Luckily, I'm, I'm an identical twin brother, identical twin, and I have an identical twin brother. He, he's been my best friend. Um, he's one of my biggest supports through, like, through my addiction. And if it wasn't for him, I probably would have struggled a lot more. But I, I didn't really fit in moving here. Oftentimes, we were referred to as the fat twins with the funny accent in middle school. So it was, it was a difficult transition for sure. Fast forward to high school, meet a group of kids that made me feel like I fit in with them. And not really grieving this trauma, um, I found alcohol and I found wheat. It started off as here and there type of thing, experimental stuff. I really, looking back on it now, it like really helped me escape from my own issues that I was dealing with at the time. Here and there kind of experiment, uh, experimentation and stuff led to like every weekend. And then eventually it became like an everyday thing. Fast forward to 18, 
it was kind of the cool thing at the time to to go on a mission. My brother and I were struggling to stay away from the the kids that we were associating with. So we moved down to Arizona, uh, to Mesa, Arizona, to prepare for a mission. So we were down there right around 19. Uh, we moved back up to Logan, uh, Bolson in our papers. Looking back on it, like I really wasn't feeling it a whole lot. Like I just kind of did it because that was the thing to do. And I felt like my family wanted me to do it. And I'll actually share a little bit about my my patriarchal blessing too that I got when I was 18 that kind of plays into my whole story too. The funny thing is, is that I turn in my papers and I get my mission call and I get called right back down to Arizona. I had a lot of family down there. It was the Tempe Spanish speaking mission. I had actually kind of partied with a lot of the guys on the ASU campus and that was part of my mission. So there's a lot of temptation while I'm down there. I didn't fully understand it at the time. And I was supposed to leave November of 2002. Um, My brother was set to leave in October of 2002. In September of 2002, I was with four of my friends. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Just trying to have some fun, just stupid teenager stuff, you know, breaking into my high school the night before their homecoming and decided to spray paint our student center the the rival school's colors that they were playing the night or the night after and uh it was just a joke nothing nothing serious um but a few of the kids that i was with wanted to take a little bit farther and there was a popcorn machine that was in the concession stand that they wanted to take and since there were five of us, two of us wanted to do it. Two of us didn't want to do it. I was in the middle and I just wanted to get the heck out of there. So we ended up following through with it and it wasn't there. So we ended up taking some candy and, and Gatorade and stuff like that and hiking it up to the car that we had. And as we were leaving, uh, we were pulling off a dirt road and a car was coming towards us and that car happened to be a cop. It was one o'clock in the morning, and and this this all this kind of plays into the story too. The cop pulls us over, and pulls us all out, asks if he can search the car. My friend said no. Took all of our names, numbers, and long story short, said if anything, if I find out anything happens, I'm coming straight for you guys. So us being scared teenagers, we actually broke back into the school and cleaned up the mess, but we left some stuff behind. Ended up getting arrested the next day for a third degree felony and two class A misdemeanors. And at that time, I don't know what church policy is right now, that they take your mission call away if you have a felony that's pending. Um, so that kind of devastated me a little bit. But the worst part was is that there's a label. Our, our local newspaper put out a an article saying five prospective missionaries uh, accused of vandalism. Um, and put our full name and, and age and everything in there. And that kind of made statewide news and really like placed this label on me that I, growing up, I had kind of heard that I was a bad kid. I never felt like I was a bad kid or anything like that, but this kind of like validated this negative self-belief. He, like having that mission call taken away from me and everything, like it, it really affected my my overall sense of well-being and sense of self. One of the hard parts was, was that one of the kids that had his, there was only two of us that had a mission calls and we were supposed to leave around the same time. Somehow he ended up getting his mission call back and I didn't get mine back. So he's, 
his dad helped him get it back and I'm here. Like, I don't have anyone to guide me through this. So I'm just kind of stuck. Luckily in January of 2003, we went to court and they ended up dropping all the charges because the police officer pulled us over illegally, which was definitely a bonus, but I'm still stuck here while this other kid gets to go. And all this kind of has a purpose too, because there's a big picture at the end that I didn't see in the moment. Fast forward to April of 2002. Um, I had gone down to Arizona with my mother to see my sister. I think she had just had a baby or was about to have a baby, one of the two. And we were, we were coming back into Cache Valley um, and it was raining. It was about 10 PM and uh, my mom was driving and we were, there was only us and a semi that was on the road and we were following the semi and he pulled into the left-hand lane. It was a two lane road on each way. And my mom continued to go, but he was slowing down and ended up making a wide right turn from the left-hand lane and it was running us off the road. So I don't know if how well your camera is, but there's a scar that runs across my face. I have um, noticed that scar before. Yeah. But um, I ended up taking my seatbelt off a minute before it had happened my knees hit the dashboard and I kind of folded in, in half like a pancake and my oh face was filleted by the, the windshield and ended up having 156 stitches in my face uh, oh and my, my eyes bloodshot red. That really affected me too, because I, I didn't leave my house for quite a long time. Anytime I would leave my house, I'd, I'd get looks from people that really killed my self-worth and my self-confidence. Before that, I was a pretty upbeat person and, and it was actually at that point that I had actually been clean for a little bit from, from alcohol and weed, but it was at that point that I was introduced to painkillers and I loved it. I loved the way it made me feel. I loved the way it made me not feel this euphoric feeling that just made everything else go away. And I was overprescribed at the time. That's when the, the opioid epidemic started to take off a little bit. The Oxycontin came out and, and all those things. I didn't really have a, a connection to that as much, but I started drinking a lot more. The more I was able to seek it out, the more I found it. And so that's when my opioid addiction started to take over. I just kind of like fell into a deep, dark place at that point too, like really disconnecting from the people that I loved. The bigger purpose of this too, the accident was not necessarily a bad thing. At the time it was, but I didn't really focus on that. I wasn't obviously the only one that was involved in this accident. My mom was too. And the airbags didn't go off, which ended up being a blessing because her chest hit the steering wheel. She was wearing her seatbelt. And so they ended up taking her in, doing a lot of CT scans and stuff, ended up finding out that she had breast cancer and did an emergency, uh, yeah, an emergency uh, mastectomy uh, within a month. And that actually prolonged her life for, for quite a long time. But Oh, my God. Like, yeah, no. definitely blessings involved, but I didn't see it at that time. And and the crazy thing too, is that my brother was on a mission and he, he was serving in Edmonton, Canada. Your twin brother. Yeah. And it was just me and my mom there at the time. And I was so far gone at that point that they actually asked him, he came home for a surgery and our state president asked him to stay home and, and not return to his mission. And to kind of take care of my mom because of the spot that I was in and she needed that extra help. And I wasn't there emotionally. I wasn't there spiritually. I wasn't, I was just kind of this dark hole that kind of fueled everything for me moving forward. The more and more I was able to find these painkillers. And I, I always told myself like, 
I started off with like lore tab tins, Percocet tins, stuff like that, and and told myself like oh, I'll never touch an oxycon. That's that's what addicts touch, you know. Like go lo and behold, there's nothing else there, and the only thing that's there is an oxycon. So I was I was withdrawing, I was hurting, and and I tried it, and again like that took it to a whole other level like that feeling of euphoria like it, it was crazy and so i started becoming more addicted to these heavier painkillers again telling myself like oh never touch heroin you know and and that's that's what dirty addicts do stuff like that labeling that trying to justify and rationalize my my use and again like there's nothing there but heroin so over this period of time like I progressively started to get worse and worse and worse. And I would try to leave. I would leave Cache Valley to go get clean. And then I found this pattern and this pattern, like kind of, it was throughout my whole addiction is that I'd come back two weeks later. I was right back where I was making this progress. And not really. It was funny because my brother told me one time, my older brother, Ben told me, he's like, you got to quit running from your problems face your problems. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about at the time. This pattern of two weeks. So I, I moved down to Arizona five different times for a year about each time. And I started going to school and stuff like that, trying to be productive, but coming back that two weeks, I'm right back where I was over and over and over again. And it just kept progressively getting worse and worse and worse. And we know that addiction is a progressive disease. Luckily, I never really got in any trouble when I was using heroin and, and opiates kept disconnecting and, and kind of making this this false narrative in my head that my family didn't want me around. So I kept disconnecting from the people that love me the most and that I have this deepest connection with the most and connecting with these people that that just keep pulling me farther and farther away, like into the adversary's grip, you know. It's crazy because in July at the time I didn't realize it, but a pretty toxic relationship. She was clean at the time. I was not. I was lying through through that relationship and kind of got honest a little bit, told her that I relapsed, and she tried to justify and say, hey, because you did, I get to. And her drug of choice was meth. So at that point, I started to cross-addict to meth. But I was addicted to opiates for about eight years. Cross-addicted to meth, that was like a whole new ball game for me. At first, it wasn't like too serious, but I got introduced to needles and needles made it like, ah, like I just get my skin crawls when I think about it because it's a whole new addiction. And it just sucks the soul from you. Like it really takes your soul. Yeah. Like if, if I had one trigger, it would, it would be that needle. And like I still have that fear and I know it's an irrational fear, but it's the one thing that scares me about always going back. But it it was a very short lived addiction. Um, probably I really started using heavy in probably like March, April of 2012. Um, and by July of 2012, um, I was catching felonies. I got a, 30 felony and two class A misdemeanors on July 5th of 2012 and July 17th of 2012, I caught another felony 
September of 2012, I caught another felony. So here I'm sitting felony on felony on felony, get picked up on a, a failure to appear warrant and sitting in jail. And like, <laughs> I always, I always thought of jail as like a spiritual rehab for me because it gave me time to escape from the outside world. And I got to self-reflect and I really started to moving forward when I was in jail again, I made a goal myself to start reading the book of Mormon while I was in there. But at this time, like I was going back, it, I felt really hopeless and helpless too, because I was asking for the drug court program up here. Uh, there was no availability. The prosecuting attorney at the time, like I went to court every week trying to come up with some kind of plan to help myself, like to better myself and something the prosecuting attorney really like resonated with me because we were talking about a DUI that I got. I had actually uh, totaled my mom's car and took out a tree. Luckily, no one else was hurt. And he called me a danger to society to my face. And that one hit me hard because I was like, that's not who I am. Like, how can you sit there and say it? And I actually wrote a letter not too long ago because he's a judge now and told him, I was like, you were right. Like, I was a danger to society. I was not just a danger to other people. I was a danger to myself. And I didn't care. Luckily, I was able to get out. Um, right before Christmas in my pattern, two weeks, I was right back at it. Luckily in February of 2013, I was able to sign on to the first uh, district drug court. Didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I just knew that I could get rid of my felonies. I knew at that point, like I wanted to get clean. I just didn't know how. And not just that, I, I, like most other people struggling with their addictions, like I was afraid. I was afraid to live life on life's terms and know what it was like to just to feel my feelings and everything and, and really connect with other people. And I sat on, there's five phases on this drug court, you know, drug courts throughout the state are a little bit different, but I sat on the first phase for 13 months and you max out at three years. Normally in phase one on this one, you could get through in 30 days, but through this process, I was very grateful. I would go to jail, Two weeks later, back in jail. Go to jail. Two weeks later, back in jail. But the one thing, the one thing, and I hope my judge is listening to this because I love this man more than and he was. A, he was like a father figure to me, and I've never really been able to tell him that. And he was able to see, and I get emotional right now just thinking about this guy. Uh, he was able to see something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time. But the one thing I did was I was able to go up there and hold myself accountable. And in reality, I should have been kicked out on multiple occasions but he sent me to rehab i was there for eight days and here's here's one of my miracles right here is that on the seventh day they came to me and said i had a dirty ua for opiates and i was like what are you talking about like i'm, I'm on a lockdown i can't even leave and you're telling me i have a dirty and they said if you don't admit to it there's nothing we can do to help you and i was like well what does that even mean like doesn't mean if I don't admit to it, you're going to kick me out. They just said, if there's nothing, if you don't admit to it, there's nothing we do to help you. So this is kind of where my, my recovery took a, a, a like a drastic change too, is that uh, I went back to my bunk and I said a prayer and I asked heavenly father, I said, what do I do? I want help. I need help. Do I lie so I can get the help that I want and I need, or do I tell the truth? And immediately I got an answer that said, tell the truth. The next day my PO came and picked me up and took me back to jail. Again, I don't know why this man did not kick me out because he specifically said, do not leave early. Do not get kicked out. 
luckily my my probation officer when he came to pick me up he asked me he's like what happened and i told him i had to dirty for opiates and he looked at me with this like confused look and i was like i know all my dirties have been for meth and i think that might have given me another chance but i sat in jail for another seven weeks and they got me into odyssey house and that changed my life that was exactly what i needed it i lacked structure in my life um i will be forever grateful for that place I wanted to stay and graduate the program, but they wouldn't let me stay. The drug court made me come back and I struggled coming back because I was placed in this environment where I had used for so long. I remember shortly another kind of one of those, those miracle moments. Yeah. I might get emotional on this one. (laughs) I, I had a very vivid dream shortly after I got home. I remember it was everything like to the point where the needle went in my arm. The next thing I know, like I went to push it and I shot up and I was just like, it almost like I did it. And I was so scared. And I was like, no, this is not what I want. So I remember rolling out of my bed. I said the serenity prayer. I said the the third step prayer. There was a poem that I highly recommend if people haven't heard of this poem. It's called the race by DH Groberg. But if you're struggling with an addiction, like, please go read that poem because it changed my life. Come to find out that poem my dad used to read to us when we were younger. So there's a connection to this poem. I roll back into my bed and I said a, a prayer. I remember this overwhelming warmth come over my body and a voice that said, everything's going to be okay. I immediately knew it was my dad. From that point forward, everything was different. I was not going to church at the time. I was heavily evolved in, in Narcotics Anonymous, and I'm forever grateful for that program to you. The, the community up here is amazing. I needed that community. I needed that connection, and, and it really helped my spiritual growth. I was about 18 months clean. I was content. I was pretty happy with life, um, but I felt like something was missing, and I, I really took some time to self-reflect I looked at everyone in my family and they were authentically happy. And I'm like, what am I missing here? And I started to realize like, it's, it's the gospel. So I told myself I was living with my oldest brother at the time. He's, he's been a pretty influential person in my life too. I don't express that to him enough, but he has been, but I told myself, I'm like, all right, I've never really given this a chance. You know, like I've, I like I've, I've kind of dabbled my feet and I told myself, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it hundred percent. I'm I'm not going to, I'm going to dive in head first and fully understanding too. Like I'm uh, probably going to get excommunicated disfellowship or something like that. And I was ready for that. Went and talked to my Bishop, uh, started the repentance process and I was disfellowshipped, started that whole process. And, and I ended up, my, my twin brother ended up moving back up. He lived in Arizona. He moved back up here, and I moved out of my oldest brother's house and then moved into my twin brother's house, um, kind of help out with child care and stuff like that and, and rent. Changed bishops, uh, wards, everything. It was, it was a pretty good experience, and I, I'm very grateful because the bishop that I had was very compassionate and empathetic. Uh, the ward that I, I was in, like, it was very, they were connected. I've always been involved in sports and like, I would go play church ball with them and they just made me feel really welcome. Oh man. 
<laughs> I would get super emotional here in a little bit. Um, my wife's probably listening from her office, and I was there, and I was kind of in. I was I was still in drug court. I was kind of in and out of relationships, and eventually told myself like I'm I'm not going to be in any relationships until I'm done with drug court. I need to focus on my recovery. Like I need to focus on finishing this. Um, at the time, I just applied to go back to school at Utah State. I ended this relationship and my sister-in-law was like, why don't you try online dating? I'm like, oh, that stuff's crap. Like, this is another miracle right here too. Like, it is, is crazy. Like, Go figure, I'm sitting on Facebook and a few weeks later, I see this thing for like LDS singles pop up. I'm like, yeah, what the heck? So I started checking it out, connecting with people. It's kind of set up like Tinder a little bit and was talking to these girls and stuff like that and all of a sudden i see this one girl and i'm like oh man she's she's pretty attractive so i clicked on her name and she had already like clicked on mine so it matched immediately so i started talking to her and i looked at hers and i had this rule of like i'm not driving longer than two hours for a relationship so provo was my max and it said that she was 80 miles away from me i'm like okay cool but on the other end, it showed that I was 10 miles away from her. So we started talking actually. And I felt like we really clicked it, like hit it off and clicked and come to find out she's in Woodbridge, Virginia. And I couldn't stop talking to her. And it, like it was hours and hours a day. And, and this was in October of 2015. I, I told her like, I give her my history kind of like to spiel of like, I, I'm not messing around. I'm, I'm trying to date to find companion so i i let her know everything and if she wanted to stick around she could have stuck around and she did uh december of 2015 actually going back a little bit too i guess i, I really want to touch on my mom because she was she was my rock she was everything to me so my mom was in remission for five years uh she missed a checkup and ended up the the cancer came back and then metastasized from her breast to her bone um, and through this whole process, like I was able to connect with her more and be there and be present for her. And it helped our relationship grow a lot because I know like working through the 12 steps, um, I don't know if you're familiar with 12 steps or not, but we'll, oh yeah, I'm okay. definitely familiar with 12 steps. So making an amends, I couldn't make an amends. Like I couldn't fully make, I had to make it a living amends with her because I'd taken so much financially from her that there was no way I was going to be able to pay that back. Um, so I started working this living amends with her and, and really taking care of her, taking her to her appointments and stuff like that, making sure that she was okay. And that really like that, that strengthened the bond between us. She ended up collapsing one day and hit her head on our baseboard. And I rushed her up to the hospital and found out, that it had metastasized to her brain. Oh my um, gosh. She had these lesions all over her brain. And it was only a matter of time. She she started doing radiation and stuff like that. And it got to the point where she just just wanted to live life. I made a promise to her that I wasn't ever gonna go back. She would get angry with me sometimes. Like towards the end, she was kind of nonverbal, but she would like mumble and I just tell her, I reassure her, Mom, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like I'm 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 not doing anything dumb. I'm I'm fine. And she ended up passing away in December of 2015, about a week after I met my wife for the first time. Um, my wife flew to California, 
how to lay over here, took her up to Temple Square to the lights and stuff like that. And was able to to really strengthen that relationship with my wife. It, this long distance was actually really, it was good for me because it allowed me to like understand her and get to know her rather than like in a spiritually and, and emotionally like intimate way. The last time I flew to Virginia in May of 2016, I actually proposed and flew, like we drove back here and moved her here. And through this whole process, I'm actually, I'm still disfellowshipped and continuing to work on, on gaining my membership back and starting to take temple prep classes and stuff like that. I ended up getting my full membership back, I think in like May, was going to receive my endowments um, in June of 2016. And we were actually getting married in August. Another like pivotal point in my life. And these are the things like these miracles that I've had in my life will never lead me astray from the church ever again. I cannot deny these things. And it's because of this strength, this relationship that I have with, with my Heavenly Father. Oh my gosh, that so true. It's like yeah. once you have experienced that change of heart and those little, I mean, that is why this podcast is here is because, yeah. you know, once you experience that, you can't deny it. No. And I, and I will never, this next one I haven't shared with many, but I feel like it can help a lot of people who might be struggling too, is that most, if not all of my siblings had had some kind of dream about my father after he had passed away. I had had one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had. And I know it was real. It was shortly before I went and received my endowments. I'm on the spiritual high. And I had a dream and my mom was there. I looked at her, not even communicating, no words, no nothing. And she's just this beautiful person in my ass. I said, where's dad? She looked away and I looked over where she looked and he was standing at the top of these stairs. And I just fell to my knees. And I started crying. And I woke up from this dream just in tears. From that point on, like I knew. I knew that my parents were there and there was a bigger purpose for everything. That was probably the most spiritual moment of my life. And hopefully that resonates with someone and that can help them through their own struggles. But I know that there's something after this life. There's been a few other times since then that I've had these spiritual experiences, but none, none as strong as the ones that I've shared. Fast forward, we end up getting married. The cool part was, is that, my drug court judge ended up showing up to my temple ceiling. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. Yeah. And I am forever grateful for that. That was another, a big, a big moment too. Like going through the temple, like the feeling that I get there, like in my ceiling, like I, I didn't even pay attention to what they were saying because I was just kind of soaking up that moment. But afterwards, like this overwhelming joy and this overwhelming warmth just over my body like knowing that everybody's there being able to like carry this on like it talks about being sealed in my patriarchal blessing and stuff like that and it's crazy too like to go back to my patriarchal blessing a little bit too is that if my brothers are watching this thing correct me if i'm wrong but in every one of their patriarchal blessings it states that they will serve a full-time mission in mine the wording specifically says you will have the opportunity to serve a, a full-time mission so wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. I never really like read that until afterwards and like understood it and realizing like 
that's what I'm doing right now. Like it, that's why I do what I do is to help bring people back. Um, mm-hmm. I, my passion is working with people with their own addictions and helping them not even like necessarily bring them back to the church, but helping them strengthen that relationship with God, because that's what it's all about. And it, it talks about service in there and basically having these skills like to, to do service using, using my talents and my experiences to help, to help other people is what it is. I love my job. I, I love the line of work that I'm in. Like I get to, to relate to people on an intimate level and help them kind of build the spirituality regardless of who their higher power is, you know, like just help bringing them back, understanding that it's God, you know, like, yeah, I don't, I don't ever push my own agenda or anything like that on other people. But I mean, I firmly believe like we only have one. I purposely kind of sat here too, because in the background, you see a picture of my family. My wife and I have struggled with fertility issues. Uh, Shortly after we got married, um, we ended up getting pregnant. And eight weeks later, she had a miscarriage and have not been able to have our own kids since then. Um, And they put us in a category of unexplained infertility. My wife, I love her being the kind of impulsive person that she is sometimes. We were driving to California and talking about adoption and stuff and the next thing i know when we get back she's like hey I signed us up for foster care i'm like what like this was just a conversation like why he pulled the trigger like but it ended up being a huge blessing we were placed with a, a beautiful set of twin girls the first placement and that was really difficult to let them go home we had them for about eight months and after that like we were both wrecked emotionally and kind of I don't know if resentful we were salty is what it was <laughs> like screw this we're gonna have like a Christmas with the cranks type thing and no Christmas for us we're going to Disneyland December 23rd of 2019 we get a call said hey will you guys be willing to accept a sibling group and we're like uh give us some more details and they're like uh it's a teenager and then uh 20 month old and a five month old and we're like oh man the teenager part like was difficult but i'm like it's christmas you know like so christmas eve 2019 we brought these three kids into our home it's been a pretty cool experience um our daughter ended up asking us to adopt her that's kind of been a little closer but we were able to be sealed to our boys um less than a year ago Oh my gosh. It's just been a cool journey. Um, So cool. And it's funny because it talks in in my patriarchal blessing a little bit about like posterity and stuff and being sealed. And I never would have guessed like that was the journey. Like I always assumed Mm -hmm. I'd have my own, but realizing like had we had our own children, these kids would not be placed in our lives too. So it's definitely been a blessing and a miracle to have and they're crazy. They're crazy kids. I freaking love them though. Mine are mine are too. Yeah. <laughs> I love no. that. They're my they're my little buddies and my daughter she's about turn eighteen in January. So Wow. So it was the teenager thing not as scary as it seemed. No, no. It, it not at first until she went to high school and then it was really scary. Oh yeah. I oh man. Tested my patience. God helped me out through that for sure. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of my story. I 
love it. So good. I am so happy that you came on the podcast to share your story and shout out to your mother-in-law who's Lynette Brunson. That's her name. I love her. (laughs) Awesome. I love to hear it. Um, So as we're wrapping up, tell me what advice would you have for somebody that might be just like on the edge, like they're, maybe they're going through addiction or maybe they're going through a faith crisis or maybe they're going through something like that. And they're just, they don't know what to do. They're thinking maybe they would take a chance on the church. What advice would you give to them? Pray is one thing. I don't, I don't care how you strengthen your spirituality. Like it. And I always go back. It's like, I tell people that you can have spirituality with no religion, but you cannot have religion without spirituality. Spirituality is the foundation of every religion. So strengthen that spiritual aspect, you know, like whatever you need to do to strengthen that, that relationship with God, do it. If it's being outside, if it's being with your family, you know, like listening to music, like focus on that, like build that, that connection with, with heavenly father, with God. If you're on the fence about it, you know, just, Oh, you, you mentioned the faith crisis. Cause I just, I, I listened to something not too long ago about like never letting a good faith crisis go to waste. Yeah, Jared Halverson. Yeah, I love that. So good. Creation to follow the atonement. Yes, he was on the podcast. Um, so everyone listening, check out Jared Halver- Halverson's episode. It was I just re-listened to it with my husband a couple of days ago. It is yeah. so good. But that particular don't let a good faith crisis go to waste. Yeah. Man, That's that cool. that changed my life. It was awesome. I I absolutely loved it. And the way that he had it is like, it's not it's not a cycle. It's a linear thing. It's just it's right. like stock exchange, you know, like you, you have to go through it. If you're not testing your faith, yep, you have to. Otherwise, that strength's not going to be there. Like you, yep. We all have to do it in some way or another. Like test your faith. Reach out. Ask, right. Yeah. And connect with other people. Like if you're struggling and it's something you want, surround yourself with the people who have what you want. Then that's through my story is like, NA was my thing because those people had what I wanted. They had clean time. They had recovery. And I wanted that. And then I got to that point of like being content. And I'm like, okay, these people have what I want. Like I don't, I don't really attend NA anymore because I have what I need. And it's it's my spiritual connection with with Heavenly Father. And I have my family. Like I know that program's there and I will always be there if I need it. But surround yourself with people who have what you want. I love that. That is such good advice. Well, Kyle, you are so awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I want want to give a shout out to you and Portia Louder for doing what you guys are doing because that's making an impact. Portia is amazing. um, Yes, we love Portia. Well, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And I'm so excited to release this episode. So thank you. Katie Brunson, get your butt on here. Katie, we're going to we're going to come come after you. Yeah. I love it. Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. 
You can find all of our episodes here. Um, there's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.